this is this is the ER, this is triage. Uh, you look at these reports, and a lot of these boats are full of 40, 50 people, and 30 of them are children. Um, and yet the, the, the solution to the problem is to sink the boat. And it's just, it's horrifying, horrifying to think about. Well, hey guys, this is Jason and welcome back to the 3880 podcast. This is part three, the final installment of a series we called the Refugee Highway. And Joe Dunn and I talk about our experiences in Greece from working in a drop-in center in Thessaloniki to the literal front lines of this crisis on the island of Lesbos at Camp Moria. And we close out this episode talking about steps that you can take to help plug in and take action against this crisis. We'd love your feedback, so check out the show notes, send me an email, I'd love to hear from you. Enjoy the show. And so there are so many pieces of misinformation and disinformation of uh, following Jesus and what it means to be a true believer that they're almost shocked to think that these Christians uh, are loving on right. them. And so that was evident in Greece, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. That's a, that's a great segue. <laughs> um, jumped on a plane from, <laughs> from Cologne and uh, continued down our our highway, so to speak, uh, into Athens, which was a, a, just a stopover for us where uh, we had a, an amazing um, time viewing some great architecture and history and a, a few really great conversations uh, unexpectedly with, as we shared a cab with a, a gentleman who had a, a great faith story and a uh, almost a life to death, death to life kind of thing. Um, but we, we ended up in Thessaloniki where we had a chance to serve alongside a, a, a drop-in center ministry there. Tell us a little bit more about uh, how you got involved with with that uh, with those folks there. Yeah, well, I will say, and I'm sure you'll attest to this, that Greece was overwhelmed. It was. Uh, just the, the raw human need that was present. And if it's any glimpse of uh, what Jesus took on the cross, uh, there is no way we could uh, come close to even uh, bearing the weight yeah. of all of that. And yeah. so thank God for our Savior, who he's the one that takes care of all that. But, you know, I think uh, the care center there in Thessaloniki, uh, it is, again, it's a uh, partnership amongst many nonprofits together with the Greek Evangelical Alliance. And it was through some of our colleagues that we were first exposed to opportunities there. And so uh, I was essentially on some of the same journey this last June to seek and uncover partnerships for uh, opportunities for those that want to be mobilized from Europe and from the States to serve along the refugee highway. And wow, the people that are in the care center there, you remember this. I mean, they are as like-minded and like-hearted as any of us. You'd think they were uh, our neighbors across the street or our fellow small group members. They were, uh, they're Greek. Their heart is as big as the world. The Greeks have really taken on a lot of what the rest of the EU and a a lot of the rest of the world has not done. And so they just have huge hearts 
even though it's to their own detriment. And so we, we ran across them. They welcomed us in uh, with open arms to come back and serve any and every time. And, and as you remember, because of resources, they're only open a couple days a week. One day, uh, Tuesdays is Men's Day. And that's a chance for the men to come in and get a shower, to shave, to have their laundry washed and dried, to pick out the few clothes that were there available, to have a meal. And uh, unlike some of the closed camps that we've either already talked about or will talk about, this was an open center mm -hmm. uh, where the gospel could go out. And uh, I'll let you tell the story of how you experienced Mateo being able to, to share. Um, but um, they're just very evangelical-minded and people I think we want to be partnering with long into the future because of the like-heartedness for reaching people. And I was going to mention then again, on Thursdays they do Family Day, so it's a chance for the women, the children to come in and be able to get close, to have a meal, uh, to receive language training, to use sewing machines, to repair clothes. They just offer so many services that seem insignificant in one sense, but just meet such a huge need. And so the gospel went out both days. Um, yeah. How, how, did you, uh, how did you experience the Tuesday time? Yeah, it was, uh, I, I think... From the original comment about Greece, about just being in Greece, um, was was really I'm really sad for the country, and I think uh, I'm not going to get into economics and politics, but you see Greece from a vacation perspective, and you see the pictures of Mykonos and the the white and the blue and the the beautiful beach scenery. Um, the the cities are very 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 different, um, very old feeling lots of graffiti not very well kept up and 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 i didn't i honestly didn't expect that and I, I knew greece's economy was was struggling mightily but it's evident in the cities and and even the locals mm -hmm. you know there was a couple of protests while we were in thessaloniki so it, it was an interesting time uh the drop-in center was amazing the uh Irene, who's the the, the Greek woman who runs it or is part of uh, part of the management team, leadership team, such a huge heart for the refugees there and, and is the right kind of person to, to, to support an organization like that. She's firm but loving and she has to use that to, to keep things under control because things can escalate quickly. We saw a few examples of that while we were there. Um, Mateo, the uh, missionary uh, who's in Cologne, um, from America was with us on that trip and had a chance to, to share the gospel to the group while they were having a sandwich that the team had prepared and to watch him share and to see it translated, uh, you know, there in Arabic for the folks that were there. I believe it was in Arabic or far, could have been Farsi, I mm -hmm. guess. Um, it, again, some people were checked out, but there were, you know, there were a, a lot of people whose eyes were just fixed on on the translator and just you could tell that something was working in their minds and in their hearts and you could see it on their face and I think that was probably one of the most amazing things to, to witness is just them hearing that possibly for the first time in that context in a context of love the other thing that blew me away was you know we walked in on, on that Tuesday morning for the first time and there were people from all over the world who'd come there to, to serve 
And I guess I'm just used to being with American teams and American missionaries and America this, America that. We had Germany, Brazil, Syria, uh, Egypt, the Coptic Church of Egypt, and a pastor had a, a team of women there who were just there to serve and minister to the women, the, the women refugees. Uh, uh, Austria, uh, I'm probably, uh, I've got them written down somewhere, but I was just, I don't know, it just filled me with joy to see other Christians from other parts of the world who were willing to sacrifice weeks and sometimes months to go and help. And I was, I don't know, I'm still blown away by that. Yeah, we had the two thoughts I had were real similar. Mateo uh, being a refugee himself right. from Colombia to the U.S. was able to tell a, a gospel story of uh, not so much of immigration, but of somebody wanting and seeking the Lord mm-hmm. for their own healing and for their own uh, advancement, and yet. Uh, the whole purpose of God leading him into the, uh, the healing waters wasn't so he'd be healed, but so he could find God himself. Right. And uh, Mateo just taking his family's story of economic, need to seek economic asylum uh, in the U.S., but just saying how uh, that's what God used in their lives to bring himself and his family to uh, saving faith in Christ. And and his challenge to the refugees is, how do you know that's not what God is doing in your life right now? Yeah. And that's He a, has brought that, you to a place in a time like this. That is a an overarching theme that uh, that I've I've heard from you and from other folks that that we interacted with, other missionaries that and and leaders that we interacted with there. Is this this big idea, and, and I'll I want to recap that at the end of our conversation. But this big idea of God is on the move in these countries, and and while this is a tragedy and a uh, a human crisis, we've never had an opportunity to share the gospel to some of these people and some of these cultures. And so that's that's an overarching mindset that I know you you, you see that vision and you're bought into that as well. Yeah, like you said at the end, um, that'll be the one thing I'll probably yeah. ask people to really walk away with, and and we'll capture that a little more. But you know, even even to your point, one of the stories, one of the guys that was translating there, if you remember him, Yin, Yin is from Sudan, and and uh, Yin was telling his story in the previous trip I had there, uh, and that is he. For one year, almost to the year, every night he would have the same dream. And he would have a dream of a frame of a door. And he couldn't get rid of the dream. He didn't know what the dream meant. Uh, it's at the same time that there was an ethnic cleansing that broke out in the, in the village of Sudan that he was in. And so he escaped and left and uh, he ended up in the home of some Sudanese believers and he shared the story of uh, his dream with them and how he'd had that dream every night for a year and they pointed him to the scripture that talks about Jesus being the door and here he is he's a guy that God is using a dream he's combined with believers who are in in more or less uh, God getting his attention for the gospel 
and bringing him directly to believers who could point him to the scriptures and point him to the G- to Jesus. And he gave his life to Christ. Um, and he the two things about that story, one is he's never had that dream since, and he doesn't know why. The second part is he comes from a place in Sudan that's very rural, and there are no such things as doors and door frames wow. because they live in huts. And they only have openings. And so he was really, truly trying to see what is this door and what is the light coming through the door? And so there he was a few, now a few years later, um, where God had changed his life. He's the translator. He's full-time in vocational ministry, reaching out to refugees. So God is at work like you're saying, and God is at work in all kinds of places and God is leading people to himself. So, so I don't, I don't know how I feel about talking about Lesbos. Um, it's still, it's still a bit haunting to me, but we did make the journey. Um, I will say that upon arrival, I would, that was the grease that I expected. That's kind of the grease you see in some of the postcards. It's a beautiful, beautiful Island. Um, it's got a great, it had a great climate, great temperature. I mean, it was just, it was a beautiful place. Uh, and so I was a a bit overwhelmed with, uh, what I, what I knew I was going to see having traveled and, and been in, you know, some third world countries and understanding a bit about those environments. Um, it was, it's, It haunted me a little before, and it, it, it still haunts me. So we made that trip to Lesbos. We met up with Robbie McAllister, who uh, is a guy that I'll never forget. So uh, where do we start with Lesbos? Jeez, I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> well, let's start with uh, reminding everybody, this is stage one. Right. So Lesbos Island is the closest proximity geographically. There's four other islands, Kios, Coast. Rhodes and Samos, and they are all within reach of refugees who have been detained um, in camps in Turkey. And so they are continually seeking ways through being smuggled um, on rafts to make their way to uh, these islands. And so Lesbos is one of those. Lesbos is the larger of the islands. And Camp Moria, which is in Lesbos, is the largest camp. It was originally designed to be, uh, it was originally designed for about 2,800 to 3,000 refugees. They were supposed to come in in two to three days. They would be vetted and transported onto the mainland to take uh, the journey into other European countries. What has so happened? It was, it was meant to be. Star- it was meant to be a. It was meant to be a transition point, basically. Yeah, a transition point, and in 2016, especially 17 and 18, the borders of all kinds of countries were physically closed. I was watching a video the other day, and they were just. Uh, it was a video of. Uh, nationalist militia in Serbia who were being trained to patrol the borders to keep any refugees from entering in. And so these borders, they would have militia, they would have physical barriers. And so the natural ways for 
the overland ways that refugees were making their way into Europe were now physically closed. And so the only place they can go is through, uh, at least from there, is from Turkey to Greece. Additionally, at that same time, Turkey and the EU struck up a multi-billion dollar deal that would house and detain the refugees in Turkey, in encampments in Turkey. In the last year, those resources haven't been made as readily available, and Turkey, in response to their own internal crises, have started to release refugees again. And so even since about May and June, there's been an influx of new refugees to the point where there's over 14,000 in Moria. When we were there, it was right around 13,000. That keeps increasing, uh, even though they've sent some onto the mainland. Um, there's over 14,000 that are cloistered around this camp that's supposed to be made for 3,000. So tensions are high. Um, uh, safety is at a minimum and uh, it, it, all the conditions are just inadequate uh, uh, for what's going on there. So, we, so as you remember, we, we went through the fence of the camp and then the whole, the farmer's olive groves mm -hmm. were just overrun and inundated with makeshift tent after makeshift tent after makeshift tent. I'm looking at a resource that I found recently uh, once I came back to the U.S. Uh, called the Aegean Boat Report. And this is a report put out by this organization that tracks movement of refugees as best they can. Uh, there's a couple of organizations that, that support some of these statistics. Refugee Rescue is one of those who we got to meet while we were there. But looking at the stats for the week of October 14th to October 20th, the current population on Lesbos of refugees is calculated at approximately 16,424 people. And, and Joe, you and I were there again. You just said it was between 12 and 13,000 just a couple of weeks ago. So that gives you an idea of the influx of people just on Lesbos. I think the most haunting statistic that I've seen in these reports is um, boats stopped I'm looking at the annual report for 2018, 1,078 boats have been stopped. Now, when that, when you when you hear the word stop, you have more experience in this than me, and we've had some of these conversations with uh, some of the, the relief workers there. What does that mean when they stop a boat? Yeah, when they stop a boat, usually, uh, again, the Turkish Coast Guard, uh, the Turkish uh, government has been paid by the EU to keep people in their encampments when they escape from those encampments and try and make their way out. Technically, they're probably outlaws. <laughs> and so there's usually one of uh, a couple of things that happens when they stop the boats. A vast majority of them are uh, taken onto the Coast Guard boats and returned back to their encampment. So they're re-imprisoned. There are a few where either through, um, you know, who knows what was going on in people's minds, but there have been some that have been either rammed directly, uh, shot at to deflate them, or uh, capsized through the powerboat 
uh, wake, dumping people into um, the sea between uh, the Aegean Sea there between Turkey and um, and Greece. So again, and so thinking thinking about you know this this what we what again me thinking through the trip that we were on and understanding the the four as you very well explained you know the hospital analogy of the er to you know kind of being in your own room so to speak this is this is the er this is triage uh you look at these reports and you know it these boats are coming over with with 50 40 30 people on them their boats made for five six people and just trying to give folks a visual of that if you go on the Aegean boat report I'll again I'll link to this in, in the notes but you can see video you can see video of coast guards hitting the boats you can see video of a lot of different things if you want to check that out just uh, you know take a deep breath before you start watching I'll give you that warning uh, just right off the bat but a lot of these boats are full of kids a lot of these boats are full of 40, 50 people and 30 of them are children. Um, and yet the, the, the solution to the problem is to sink the boat. And it's just, it's horrifying, horrifying to think about. Yeah. Lesbos, um, the Greek people, the Greek government was not prepared for things. Remembering that they were supposed to be on these islands just for two or three days and then transported off. They now have people that have been there for two years or more. Um, with the influx of new people uh, and the limited resources for all that's going on, it's created, again, a number of uh, just a massive amount of high tension. One of the ways that we are engaged down there is we partner together with one of the 40 plus NGOs that are there by providing some basic necessities and uh, helping along, so to speak, just the chain of providing, whether it's toiletries or uh, bedding or clothing or an ear to talk to or trying to help people just capture what is going on in their life and just uh, providing a sense of stability through a handshake, a hug, a smile, a conversation, an act of service. That's how our people are engaged there. And we have opportunities for people that want to go. They need to be 18 or older, but they can serve for a week or weeks at a time, trying to help people um, just collect uh, their life back together after coming through these treacherous and just horrific circumstances. We, um, we got to go for about an hour. Uh, there was a, a fire the week before, um, a small fire, but, but that also spurred a, a bit of a, a, a bit of unrest and some riot, I guess, conditions. I don't know how severe the riot conditions were, but there was a, a fire in the camp. And so we weren't sure we were going to get to go in, but we, we did get a chance to, to walk through the camp for about an hour. And, you know, again, I, I've been, I've been to some pretty rough places, uh, some orphanages in, in Africa, some, uh, some slums, but this was different. This, this was, um, this was hopelessness. This was, um, people who were terrified, people who had nothing 
but the clothes on their back and some didn't even have that. Um, we, as we walked through, I remember we, there was a group that had just literally gotten off a boat. They were still wet. They were being dried off of towels and you could just see the despair, you know, maybe a little bit of relief that they, they had made it, but just the, the fear was still in their eyes, uh, of making that journey. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, I remember us talking in the middle of that time, how, uh, in other parts of the world where you're ministering to the poor in their own country, yeah. in their own city, yeah. they at least have that familiarity and they have the loved ones and maybe extended family or friends around them. In this case, people are separated from family. They're separated from uh, their own people. They're separated from anything that's known and familiar. And it's just you just see the sense of hopelessness in people's eyes. Hey guys, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after this quick break. continued to walk up through the camp um, past the unaccompanied minors facility which we couldn't go into and and these are thousands of of kids who whose parents are either haven't been located yet Uh, a lot of times as we learned that parents will be pushed onto one boat kids will be put onto another and the re the family members might get separated during that process and there's just this eerie space where there's family members that are pressed up against a fence looking at the intake center where the, the, the new the new folks come in once they land. And again, it's this, it's this weird sense of a little bit of hope to see someone that you, you literally just lost and now you haven't seen them for, for weeks or possibly months or maybe even longer. Um, but the, the, when they reunite, it's, it's pretty joyful. But at the same time, there's, you know, most of them are still just standing there waiting to see if their family members made it. So that was, that was rough, um, rough to see. And then we continued on up, uh, and just, just kind of walked up through the, the camp areas. And as you mentioned, the, 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 the camp is sit, situated on an old army base. And so you can imagine an army base and what that might look like. It's, you know, it's, it's, you know, kind of a rough existence anyway, but spilling over into the, the, the property that, that uh, butts up against the, the base property are just a sea of tents where folks have just expanded out because there's no room. Um, and just walking through the camp, they, that day, the forecast was calling for rain that night, which it did storm really, really bad. And as we walked through the camp, people were running up to us, begging us for tarps, begging us for pallets to put their tents on, put their tarps on. Uh, again, I, just this recurring uh, thought and conversation, this young man runs up to me and taps me on the shoulder because I'm walking around with a badge on and asked me if I could get him a, a pallet because he has a baby, knowing that it was going to rain that night. So it's, it's, uh, it's pretty desperate there. Um, and, and again, I've never, I've never had an experience where I've seen a hug go so far or a handshake or a smile. And, and Robbie, who was taking us on the tour through the trip was just, um, just kind of a beacon of light in a very dark place. 
Yeah, it was such a contrast. And, and the beauty is most of his time and those that go in uh, working together with Euro Relief, who is one of our main partners there, it is strictly humanitarian. And yet that hug, that handshake, that smile could move somebody one step further uh, yeah. on their journey as they run into other uh, believers that are there. So one of the things that's going on as well is these camp, the camp itself is closed, even though the refugees can get in and out. And so they're really spread out all over the countryside. They're all over the roads. Uh, it just breaks your heart to see people having to sleep in the open air, maybe with just a mat or a sleeping bag. Uh, people without running water, people without good and adequate sanitation, people who have just uh, makeshift electrical things just to try and gain anything to make life a little easier for themselves. But there's a few uh, community centers that are also situated right outside the camp, places where people can go um, that are just seeking maybe the next step in their spiritual journey. And, and uh, one of those was Oasis. Yep. Uh, it's a church. It's a ministry. And, uh, yeah, uh, I think what struck me there, we walked into the middle of a Bible study. And each time I've been there, I always walk into the middle of the Bible study where there's things <laughs> going on. And, and last time I was invited to share my story of faith, and I got to interact with one of the young men afterwards. And and this time it was uh, one of the directors, leaders of the, the ministry center who was doing an, an amazing job of sharing Christ in a way that would be very understandable from those from a Muslim faith because he was sharing it through the sacrificial system that God had set up in the Old Testament, but talking about the inadequacy of that sacrificial system and how Jesus is the only one who can fully satisfy the sacrifice that was demanded by God the Father. And, and uh, I'm sure you remember the story. What what do you remember from that uh, afterwards and just kind of the environment uh, that we were in and, and the responses of the people? Yeah, we like you said, we walked into the to the middle of, of him telling the story and I I sat down and I thought oh, he's talking about the, the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, and, and being cleansed, and you know there. And, and to be truthful, I thought, well, that's why would he be talking about that? <laughs> you know, that's they're not going to get this. You know, let's just skip straight to the the, the crucifixion, the resurrection. Let's get to the get to the good stuff. And man, they just it was so. Uh, miraculous, like, you know, for lack of a better word, and, and maybe that is appropriate. They, they really got it. They understood. They're like, well, wait, that's, that doesn't work. That sacrificial system, you know, what's, what's the answer? What, what happens next? And, and just that, and, you know, the storytelling ability of, of, of the guy leading it, I forget his name. I'm sorry. Um, Emmanuel, Emmanuel yeah. yeah. His ability to just, then segue into to the love of Christ and the sacrifice and his blood being shed uh, in place of uh, of the sacrificial system and the new covenant uh, people were weeping people were crying people were literally just blown away and I don't think I've ever been in a place where I've experienced anything like that um, there were a couple of families that that had made their way in 
who were Christians. Uh, I remember talking to them. We talked to them afterwards that um, were refugee families and had come in not really knowing what to expect. And they were Christian families that had no no Christian community whatsoever. And they had been searching and praying for, for God to show them, to connect them with other Christians. And they were just, I mean, they were very emotional about it, understandably speaking. And I think the biggest thing that I heard, the, the statement that was made, someone said, you know, knowing about this Jesus and knowing the love he has for us, it doesn't make me feel like a refugee anymore. Yeah, I remember him saying that, and it's just like, what a powerful, powerful statement. I think um, Emmanuel's approach is an approach that we can all learn from, and and each of us is attempted to implement, and that is just learning how to tell stories. Most of the people we're reaching out to are from a storytelling culture, and, and when they we can't tell the story, they even did some acting out and some drawing. Uh, which we've tried to train a lot of our young people not just to tell a story, but how would you have them act it out? How would you draw that? And what looks like kids' stuff to us is very engaging to them. And I just remember after after Emmanuel told the story, uh, you know, was talking about how only only um, God through Christ can really clear our conscience and cover the sin that we have. He asked everybody just to stop and to take some time in prayer. And it was, was silent. And, and that's when the tears started yeah. to well up. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was that was amazing. And it, there was probably 15 to 20 people sitting in that. And uh, one of the, there was a young guy, he's an Afghani. He was the one translating. Right. He had only on his own journey, he had only come to faith in Christ about a year before. He was, uh, he, he wanted to learn English um, to better himself later in life. And so the only way he could get a hold of English materials was to get them from Turkey. And so he had no interest or desire to learn Turkish. But because the materials came in Turkish to learn English, he also learned Turkish. And it wasn't soon after that that he left uh, Afghanistan. A lot of times what happens is for these men that are turning of age, it's they're leaving because they're going to be conscripted into either uh, an army they don't want to be a part of, like ISIS or Taliban, or they're going to be conscripted into their own army to serve. And if you're on the wrong political party, as some were, you could be fighting against your very neighbors. And so a lot of the young men were leaving, and he would be one of those men that was leaving. And along the way, uh, he went through Turkey, and he stayed with a family who were believers who, who were Turkish. And uh, that was the only way he could communicate with them. And so uh, he came to faith in Christ. He ended up finally making it to Moria. Uh, and I tell the story because one of the guys that was there at this same meeting that day had just arrived in Moria uh, a week before. And uh, he had been introduced to the translator who spoke Farsi and was able to communicate the gospel with him. And and uh, just this last weekend, 
Robbie shared with me that one of the young guys that was there gave his life to Christ and got oh, baptized. Wow. That's amazing. And so that, that same time where God was speaking to someone, God was using um, the translator in his story to minister to this young guy and uh, this other young guy that had uh, just arrived. And so God is working through the refugees to be reaching other refugees. What a blessing. It sure is. So again, I'm, I'm still, um, so I'm still wrestling with the, the appropriate response, but I guess kind of the, and it's tough to boil down such a, a huge thing, a huge issue into, into one thought or a couple of small thoughts, but what, what's one thing that you wish everybody knew about this crisis and, and maybe an, an approach to some action steps toward this? I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of Bob Goff and, and I paraphrase this, um, in his, his approach and what I've tried to really consider in the way that I respond and the way that we kind of lead our church to respond is, you know, just take a step towards it. It doesn't have to solve the problem right now, but let's, let's just start some action. So, if you can boil this down into into kind of an overarching thought, a vision that you would have for for how we can respond in this crisis, and are there some easy steps that you feel like folk, individuals, groups can begin to take towards it? Yeah. Well, probably not unlike yourself. Um, just face to face with raw humanity, both the good and the bad, staring you in the face. You see the spiritual battle. You see the physical battle. Um, it just captures your heart in a way that's hard to describe outside of having uh, the personal face-to-face experience. Because of my years of uh, time of living in Europe and because of ministering mostly in the cities, uh, the large urban centers, immigrants, refugees, they have been there since I've been there long before and they'll be long after. But I think it's coming face to face with the realities of um, God is the one who is migrating and moving people uh, to places to really reach these least and the last. I don't know if you remember standing in Athens, we were up at the Acropolis and uh, where Paul um, would have delivered his Mars Hill sermon. And I think you were getting at this earlier. And right there in Acts 17 and 24 through kind of 29, especially 26 through 29. It's just the idea that it was through God that he populated the entire earth, all of mankind. Uh, God did that. And he is the one who appointed the times and the boundaries or locations. One translation says the migrations of people in order that they might seek after him, in order that they might know him. And I think what's captured my heart more than anything else is seeing that for the first time, at least in modern history, God has allowed peoples from the least reached people groups, people who have no Christian witness, no Bible, no church, no uh, national believer in their village, in their city, who God has allowed through very difficult circumstances to bring them, to bring them to a place where 
The gospel in secular Europe is readily and freely able to be shared. And he's brought him in mass numbers. And so for me, I just see God opening a door uh, for some. They'll remember in uh, the very late 80s, early 90s, when the wall came down between the East and the West in Europe, it opened the door for the first time in 70 years for people to be able to freely worship as they wanted. And in that same way, God has opened the door in an unprecedented time in history when we can reach people that have historically been unreachable with the gospel. And so that's the compelling heart. I think if if we're serious about fulfilling the Great Commission as laid out by Jesus in Matthew 28, and if we're serious, as it says in Revelation, about uh, people from every tribe and tongue and nation uh, worshiping before the throne of God. God has allowed for such a time as this. And so even myself, uh, 15 years ago, mostly focused on university and urban uh, people in Europe, uh, God moved in my heart about six years ago. And so it's my entire focus right now. We haven't given up our primary focus of university students, but God has opened a door to reach the unreached peoples, the unreached nations, as they've come and migrated and flooded into Europe. And so what, a, what an opportunity to proclaim and demonstrate the gospel. So what I like to do is with that, I mean, there's way more than that sure, from a sure. pure theological or a heart standpoint, but what are ways people can get involved in? And I might say it this simply, although there's a lot more behind this um, than how I'm going to say it simply, but three things that come to mind. First is to pray. And when I say pray, I, I do mean pray for the nations, pray for uh, the refugees, but I'm really talking about asking God to give you and me a greater heart for the nations, a greater heart for the orphan, for the uh, widow, for the exile, for the uh, refugee, and just ask God for that. And then ask God for persons of peace among those refugees. We've talked about three or four, actually one in each location we've already talked about, and how it's persons of peace, people from a like culture or same culture, who God has touched their life and they are now proclaiming Christ to those from their own culture. So pray for our own hearts, pray for persons of peace, and lastly in Matthew Jesus says, hey, beseech the Lord of the harvest for workers who will proclaim and demonstrate the love of Christ. And so let's pray for more gospel workers uh, to be out there. So first is to pray. The second is to give. Boy, I tell you, just uh, I introduce Robbie as the guy with the big smile and the South Carolinian accent. And as soon as, and, you, uh, as, soon as you meet him, you know exactly who you're talking about. Every place Robbie and I have trod together, and they can't quite remember his name, I bring up those two characteristics, and they remember Robbie. And so, like you, Jason, I was really 
once again imprinted and inspired by what a simple hug, a simple smile, a simple few minute conversation, how far that can go. And I'm not talking uh, uh, about refugees. I'm talking about our neighbors. I'm talking about maybe uh, getting a little bit out of our comfort zone. I'll, I'll mention that here in a minute, but just talking to a neighbor, a coworker, being a smile, being a hug, being a handshake, taking the more than just uh, how's your day, fine, and moving on, but really engaging in a few minute conversation. So, given one of those, given of resources, obviously that's, you know, probably goes without saying, is always the call. But people that are working amongst the refugees, people that are leading teams, people that are making it their ambition to proclaim Christ, whether they're nationals like our friends in Greece or whether they're missionaries like our friends in in Amsterdam and Stockholm and and, uh, Cologne, or whether it's people on this side of the pond, just seek ways to resource those people who have been, uh, who are available to make uh, a difference by just their vocation and their lifestyle. And then the third, again, goes without saying, but that's just to go. I think for all of us, we're challenged to go and go may not mean physically going, though I think if possible, let's go. Let's get out of our comfort zone. You mentioned it. I tell people all the time, every time I cross the Atlantic and and I'm engaging, especially with refugees, I am completely out of my comfort zone. And to walk up to a total stranger, uh, I'm out of my comfort zone. To give a, a hello, a handshake, or a hug, I'm out of my comfort zone, and yet God asks us to go. So maybe it's visiting uh, go and visit someone in your neighborhood. Go visit a mosque. Most of the mosques in the U.S., and we visited many overseas, are places where they want to tell you their story. And it'll help you to understand the mindset and the cultural aspects of what they're thinking. And, and uh, I could go into long details of all that we've learned from actually just going into a mosque and how we can craft both our mission and our our gospeling around those visits. And lastly, which is what you and Chad and I did uh, together with Mateo, is we just took a trip, an exploratory trip, a service trip. Uh, We had to see firsthand stories that we've heard of. We had to see firsthand how can we as one individual, how can we as one church make a difference when there's such a flood and such an enormous amount of work ahead of us. And I I wish I had the time, and I'd love to tell this story, but I I would recommend reading um, the story of David and Svea Flood. And you can just Google it on the internet. It's David and Svea Flood. They were missionaries (coughs) in Africa. She died. One of their children died. He was disenfranchised with God and walked away. And towards the end of his life, um, he had, through interaction with people uh, from that region, had found out over 600 people had come to faith in Christ. And there, there were churches being planted and missions going on 
all as a result of them being willing to take the gospel and see no immediate result, but later, now four or five decades later, a blossoming ministry and blossoming evangelical presence was now in a country and in a tribe where there had been none. And so when I hear stories like that, what can one person do? One person can give a hug. One person can give a smile. One person can have a meaningful conversation and just trust God with the results. Our goal is to plant. Our goal is to sow. It's God's as to who responds to that. And so just being available to cooperate with God in the going, in the giving, and in the praying. Joe, I think that's uh, excellent advice for ways that anyone in any organization can can take a next step. So I really appreciate the time today to to help me unpack this and just talk through some of this. It's been it's been a bit therapeutic for me because, like I said, I've been I've been really wrestling with with the ways that are appropriate for for me and for us as a church as I lead that uh, with our with our church uh, to respond. And I'll just say on behalf of Chad and myself, um, you orchestrated a, a very complex trip for us to experience uh, a whole lot in a short amount of time. And I know that was a lot of work. I know it was a lot of logistical uh, ups and downs, but we had we had no issues. We had no delayed flights. We had uh, no missed trains. We had one train that broke down that we ended up catching another one. Uh, but man, it was, it was fairly flawless. So I, I very much appreciate your effort and it's had a profound, the the experience that we had has had a profound impact on my life. So I very much appreciate that. Well, I appreciate Lee, uh, Peter's, uh, leadership when he got out of the boat (laughs) (laughs) and he saw the wind and waves. He had a real simple prayer. God help. And uh, I would say going in, man, glory to God for the convenience that we had. It would have been a different trip had God allowed different circumstances. But every step of the way, I think every conversation down to the young gal uh, there in Thessaloniki, who we asked if we could pray for her and she got choked up over it. Um, I, I just think. Uh, every step of the way, God divinely opened doors. And I would say it's because we made ourselves present and available. And how many times do we get so busy, so preoccupied that we can't just be present and available? And this is my sixth year, I don't know how many trips. I've made almost 70 transatlantic trips since we lived there. And um, in the last six years, at least two, if not three, have been related to working among the refugee highway, mobilizing new workers, mobilizing long-term workers, mobilizing teams, mobilizing nationals to get the gospel out. And I will say this, there's probably not been one trip I haven't prayed, God help, (laughs) And another, that God hasn't overwhelmingly surprised me with His presence just as I am able to be present. I really feel like many times we're walking out of the pages of Acts and seeing God do the supernatural and walking out of 
the time when the disciples, after he sent them out in their pairs and they came back and said, demons were cast out and people were healed. And uh, there's so many times just being present, God has shown up through his people to his glory. And so praise God for the experience that we have. I hope many, many others get to experience it with me, with you guys. Uh, and we're just the beginnings of a long train of people who are willing to open their hearts to be used of God and by God to a people who have less chance of hearing the gospel uh, than many, many others. And so, yeah, thanks for thanks for memorializing. Yeah, exactly. That's, <laughs> our this time. Was, this was part of my goal with this was just to capture a lot of the stories and and just. I love your heart for, for what you do. And I, I just, I can't thank you enough for introducing it to us. So we, we talked about that. <laughs> hey, you got to be risk takers and don't expect anything to go the way we want. And if we're good there, then we'll trust God. So thanks for taking the risk. It was a joy to be co-laboring with you guys. I just, I'm so thankful for men like you, your families who were willing to give you up. So thank you guys. Thanks to River Ridge for the resources and freeing you guys up to go. So thanks again. It was an honor to be with you guys. And uh, I look forward to other trips together. So if you have made it this far, I just want to say a sincere thank you for listening. I mean, there are millions of podcasts out there, and I'm just honored that you'd consider spending an hour of your time to hear what I'm passionate about. Um, As you know, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts now. And for more information, check out the website 3880wv.com. Give us a review. I mean, be honest. If you like what we're talking about, if you like the show, um, give us a give us some stars. If not, that's okay too. But regardless, we'd love your feedback, your show ideas, your comments, your questions. You can send them to me in an email. You can find my email address in the show notes as well. This episode is produced by my good friend, Louis DeGeorge, my friend, my partner in ministry, and the guy that continues to push me to, to do these sorts of things. So thanks, Louis. We've got a few really exciting episodes that we're working on right now, including a feature on foster care uh, since May is National Foster Care Month, as well as a series coming up on the Ministry of Young Life. So thanks again for tuning in.